When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. A one, two, three, four. Thanks for listening to this podcast produced by Diddy TV. Visit DiddyTV.com for more exclusive, on-demand content, or download the official Diddy TV app from your app store today. Welcome to Insights, everyone. Our guest today is Barry Waldrop, an acclaimed bluegrass, Americana, and jam band artist, band leader, and record producer who's just released a new tribute album, Barry Waldrop and Friends Celebrate Tony Rice, which features a long list of luminaries, including Larry Campbell, Rodney Crowell, Vince Gill, Kim Ritchie, Emmylou Harris, Warren Haynes, and many more. Truly an all-star cast of players, In this conversation, Barry and I dig into the making of his record, how Tony Rice's music first came into Barry's life and how he immediately fell in love with it, what it's been like working in music for the last 30 years, and much more. Let's get into it, and we'll catch up again at the end of the show. So what kind of guitar is that you're holding in your hand? It's a Collings uh, D2H. I've played Collings guitars for about 25 years now. Love them. So what is it you like about them in particular? Well, I'm a big fan of uh, pre-war Martin guitars. And uh, if I were playing the one I like from that era, it would be a $300,000 guitar that I wouldn't want to travel with for sure. But uh, as far as modern acoustic guitars, uh, there's no one who does a better job than Collins in my eyes and I really, really like the feel and uh, and like the tone of the guitars as well. So you grew up playing music, right? Where where did you grow up? I grew up uh, in a little community called Rock Stand, Alabama, which is halfway between two other small towns, (laughs) Roanoke and Wedowie, Alabama. and I started playing when I was six years old and uh, my dad was a musician and it just, uh, it's just something that I've always done. I don't ever remember not playing music. So what kind of music did your dad play? Only bluegrass. He uh, was uh, really into Bill Monroe and the Stanley brothers and uh, uh, very traditional bluegrass. And, uh, and, you know, that's all I heard for many, many years. And uh, then I started getting into Norman Blake and, and Dot Watson as guitar players. And uh, 
so my dad, Norman and doc, you know, had a huge influence on me. And shortly after I heard Tony and, uh, that was, uh, uh, a great experience for sure. So when you formed your first band, was it bluegrass or was it something else? Well, I was in my dad's band from the time I was seven or eight years old until I was in my late teens. And then, uh, after graduating high school, uh, I had really wanted to experiment with some other things. And, uh, I heard Charlie Daniels playing fiddle in a more of a rock scene and uh, Tony Rice was playing acoustic guitar way out of the box from what I was, you know, used to playing at that time. And, and both of them really let me know that I could really do what I wanted to do and not have to stay in the boundaries of, of bluegrass, even though I have a, a, a huge respect for the, the traditional bluegrass music I don't think there should be boundaries on anything. And, uh, you know, so I started, you know, touring with different people and, you know, playing clubs and uh, I've played a lot of different styles of music, <laughs> but uh, even in the, uh, even the, in the more rock things that I've done, you can, you can still pick out some of those bluegrass licks that I learned really early on. You, you can never get it out of your system, you know, for sure. Well, and you, in 1993, you founded the band Rolling in the Hay in Birmingham, and you played with them for a number of years in kind of the college circuit, or where, where did you guys gig? Yes, we, we were together for 16 years. Uh, I uh, co-founded that band with uh, a guy named Rick Carter, and uh, it was, you know, uh, the bass player, uh, was Stan Foster and, and Stan and Rick had never, you know, they didn't grow up in a bluegrass scene. Uh, and so we took, you know, the three different uh, styles that we had grown up playing and we just kind of mixed it all together and uh, came up with this uh, band rolling in the hay and it had several nicknames uh, <laughs> while we were touring, you know, some people called it, uh, you know, you know, redneck speed metal and <laughs> uh, uh, whiskey drinking bluegrass. It was just really, really uh, a hot rod bluegrass kind of thing. But it was so different because if you didn't have that influence, it's going to have a different tone and a different style. And we just kind of created our own thing. And college students really, really caught on to it. And we uh, had a huge, you know, jam band following but we also had a lot of the real hardcore country uh fans following us so it it just turned into a great thing we for 16 years we mainly played you know all the the colleges across the u.s mainly uh southeast you know uh, from the carolinas down through the south out to texas and uh, it was uh it was a lot of fun so would you call that new grass or how do you characterize new grass and all of that? Well, you know, new grass really uh, probably the most recognizable new grass band would be new grass revival, which I was a big fan of. And, uh, but there was a lot of a bluegrass people like Jimmy Martin and Jim and Jesse uh, crossing the boundary. Some even before that, that, you know, really is important. 
and to know about. But um, Rolling in the Hay was not what I would consider new grass. I, I think it was more of a jam band, groove grass, you know, type genre, but it was just kind of its own thing. It, it, it really was um, unique and, and hard to describe for sure. Well, we're going to get to the background a little bit about Tony Rice because that's the tribute album. But what struck me when I was listening to the music and kind of going back and listening to some, some of the old catalog and also some of the newer songs on the album is that bluegrass is, is almost like the new version of classical music in the sense that it's highly technical and the, the people who play are very, very accomplished musicians. These aren't people who just get out and jam. I mean, almost everyone who plays bluegrass is in, an incredible musician. It's crazy. Absolutely, yes. They, they take it very seriously. And um, it's, you know, you hardly ever see someone in the bluegrass genre just singing. They always, most of the time, play an instrument. It's almost uh, a given. Um, but uh, it, it's, it's a very... Um, emotional, uh, passionate music. And, you know, I, I've, I've done shows. I really like bringing people together from, you know, different genres in one show. So one night I was doing a show and uh, I had the, uh, the band Flat Lonesome, who was a younger bluegrass band who uh, I booked a lot of their gigs in their uh, beginning stages. And uh, we were doing shows from with other people from different genres and, and when flat lonesome came in they opened up their cases and they just started playing and one of the artists asked me well are they rehearsing for something and i said no they're just they're playing because they want to they just they love it so much that they want to play and and, and put their music out there all the time well you know i interviewed billy strings last year and one of the things he said about bluegrass music was just how collaborative it is and also because if you grew up playing bluegrass, you also know a lot of the same songs. And so when you get together in a situation where, where you're around other musicians, it's easy to pick up and play together because you all know the, the basic songs that everybody knows. Yeah, there's probably 20, 25 songs mm -hmm. that you, you have to know <laughs> in order to play bluegrass, especially in a jam. But it, it's so... Um, um, I don't know how to really describe the, the passion, but uh, you can be in a jam. Everybody's always so nice and kind. It's, you hardly ever run across anyone, you know, in a jam that uh, is closed-minded, so to speak, as far as letting, letting you in to the jam or whatever, even if they don't know you. So it, it's a real cool, cool thing. And, and one thing about it being all acoustic, you can just take your instrument and go jam anywhere. And, I grew up in the festival circuit and, and that was just, you know, getting to go to those places and, and play with people you've never played with before and then be so welcoming. And it makes you want to be that way as well, but it's just a great experience and a great way to grow up. So how did bluegrass evolve, or you may not know this to a more of a stringed in instrumentation with no drums? Well, I think, uh, you know, Bill Monroe was listening to all kind of things. And, and if you listen to uh, some of the licks, 
that that Bill Monroe was doing, you can kind of uh, hear a lot of things like Chuck Berry did on, you know, on guitar, but uh, who knows where Bill, you know, got all of uh, his influence from. Uh, um, I know there was, you know, several people in, you know, that area that probably influenced him, but, you know, he had his own style. He was very protective of what he did. And as there are changes that went along, of course, you know, he had string bean as his banjo player. And then, uh, you know, when Earl Scruggs came along, he, he played banjo a totally different way. So, you know, with, with Earl Scruggs doing what he did on banjo, you know, he was the innovator for that, you know, and, so that was a, a prime example of, of how crossing the boundaries can be a good thing uh, and not staying in one place. And I know that uh, uh, the bluegrass fans are somewhat protective over the style of this music. And my opinion is keep the roots alive and, and put new branches on everything and expand it. So the music lives forever because it, it can, can be a, um, a dying dying breed if we're not careful if, if we don't do that so and and talking about banjo after after earl scruggs and then bill monroe had bill keith playing banjo who totally played a different way so it's uh it's something that i would just encourage everyone to to have an open mind about so along the way you were doing tribute albums i think you did 21 tribute albums before this album where did you sort of get the idea for the tribute album and, and what was the, um, what was sort of the impetus behind that in the first place? Well, I was, uh, I was asked by a record label in Los Angeles uh, to participate in all those. And, and they chose the artist that I was doing at that time. Uh, I did some, on my own I, and uh, we did some as a band uh, from Rolling in the Hay and uh, it was uh, you know just doing a lot of tribute songs to rock or artists uh, but doing them in a bluegrass style and and that was a lot of fun uh, but I, I just didn't set out to do those on my own I was just asked by the label to do those. Was the idea behind that to introduce folks to bluegrass by sort of bringing in that popular music culture and reinterpreting the songs? I think so. I, you know, I think anytime you can, um, let's, let's take Eric Clapton or the Allman Brothers, for instance, that's two of the ones that uh, I was involved in. And, and you take Allman Brothers fans and, and Eric Clapton fans, and they hear that from doing that tribute and then they start digging deeper and they start digging into bluegrass and then they start liking it. You're, you're just expanding right there. And um, so I think that was probably the intentions uh, of them doing that. Uh, I can't say for sure, but it would certainly be my intentions if, if it were me doing that on my own. Well, and more recently you have been involved with um, uh, the, uh, Smoke from the Kitchen Sessions. I wanted to make sure I got that right. What, well, what are the Smoke from the Kitchen Sessions? <laughs> well, in uh, 2011, 
I was contacted by a label in San Francisco uh, asked me to write and record a, uh, a banjo Southern rock type album. And it was just a call from out of the blue. And, you know, you get those calls and then you wonder, okay, is this legit? And, and you never know. So I didn't think too much about it. And then, you know, they really, um, kept asking me about all this and, uh, you know, proposed their offer and, and this kind of thing. And, uh, they had everyone lined up in Los Angeles for me to come out there. They had all the players lined up and, uh, I got to thinking, I, I just don't, not that they were not great players, but I grew up in Alabama and it, to me, it, uh, has to where you grow up has a lot to do with your influence on music. So I talked the label into the engineer and the producer coming to Atlanta uh, to record. So, uh, and I chose all the players to be on there and, and, you know, they were good with that. So I had uh, uh, Charlie star from Blackberry smoke, uh, um, on uh, guitar and doing some vocals. Uh, Coy Bowles from Zach Brown Band, uh, Paul Riddle from the Marshall Tucker Band, uh, Chuck Lavelle, who's musical director for the Rolling Stones now, who was in the Allman Brothers for many years, and uh, Benji Shanks, uh, Otel Burbridge from the Allman Brothers. And, uh, and we just, uh, we went in to the studio on a Monday morning and we recorded and uh, finished up about three in the morning on Friday, Friday night, Saturday morning. And uh, this was the record. Uh, uh, a lot of songs on here uh, I wrote myself, some I wrote with Benji Shanks, some we wrote in the studio. But uh, it was, it turned out to be one of my favorite projects I've ever done. And, uh, it, it was just a, a blast to do. So that kind of brings us to Tony Rice and this tribute album. And I wanted to hear from you a little bit about Tony Rice. I mean, I, he's obviously almost like the godfather of, of bluegrass. He's, he did so many incredible things, and especially earlier in his career. And he, he passed away, hence the tribute album. But, um, he played with so many influential uh, bluegrass players along the way as well, and then uh, produced an album that was iconic. I guess the Rounder, famous Rounder, Rounder 0044 album, and I wanted to hear a little bit about that as well, but perhaps just tell us a little bit about Tony Rice and, and maybe the reason why he was so important to you. Well, uh, Tony as a guitar player, you know, someone I discovered early on. And I, uh, I was at a bluegrass festival and I, I was always looking for, for new direction and, and things like that. And I saw a record cover uh, in a record bin and it was Tony Rice. And I ha had no idea who he was at the moment uh, at that time, but uh, he had a pre-war Martin guitar on the cover. So that got my attention. And then uh, I flipped it over and he had a song called Plastic Banana. 
on the record and I'm thinking, wow, this, if this is bluegrass, it's way out of the box for sure. You know? So, uh, so I bought the record and that was my first, uh, uh, entry to Tony Rice. And it was just something that uh, his guitar playing was something that just blew my mind because he was so different than what I had been listening to. But, but more importantly, I, I was not, uh, it really just kind of let me know that it was okay to do my own thing, that I didn't have to stay in that tradition. So that was a, a big influence for me. I know a lot of people are heavily influenced by his vocals. At, at that time, I, I really didn't care to sing or, you know, it, you know, it was not something that I was interested in, but to many, many people, he was just as big an influence as a vocalist and an artist in general, as, as he was a guitar player. Um, so that's kind of where it all started. And he was known to push the boundaries of bluegrass. And do you think that was uh, more attributable to his curiosity of music in general and pushing those boundaries? And because he really took bluegrass into a, uh, another realm. Well, I know he was, uh, you know, heavily into listening to jazz and, and you can hear a lot of that stuff in his playing as well. And, and, and who knows what else, but he just, uh, he was one of a kind for sure in, in his playing. So how did the idea for the album come about? Barry Waldrop and friends celebrate Tony Rice and there's how many tracks? 21 tracks? One tracks. So how did the idea for the album come about? Well, it actually started about seven years ago. And um, I was asked to uh, contribute a track to an album that they were doing for Tony for a, for a tribute uh, at that time to benefit him. And uh, so I got John Cowan and O'Till Burbridge and Benji Shanks, and the, the four of us went in uh, and cut a song and nothing else ever happened. Uh, we didn't hear anything else about it and nothing was ever done. So, uh, seven years goes by and, uh, February 21, uh, my manager, uh, Brian Smith, um, he said, you might want to dig that song back up and, and release it as a tribute to Tony now. And I thought it was a great idea. Um, but the more I thought about it, I'm thinking this just could be way cooler than one song. And so I called him back a couple of days later and I said, let's just, uh, let me make some phone calls uh, to some people uh, that I know that were influenced by Tony and, and respect his music. And I think that we could maybe do a 10 song album. So, so we did. The, the first people in the studio uh, on this round was uh, Jimmy Hall and John Barry. And uh, as, as we're progressing in the studio, other people start getting on board and it ended up being 21 tracks. And, and we could have had more. There's, there may be a volume too, who knows. But uh, we, uh, we topped out at 21 tracks uh, for the time being. And everybody was just so... Uh, eager to participate because they love Tony Rice and, and they want to do 
everything they can do to expand his reach as far as his music. Well, and there are so many amazing artists on this album, and the list goes on and on and on. But artists like Rodney Crowell and Jim Lauderdale and Warren Haynes, Vince Gill, John Paul White, musicians like Emmylou Harris, Spooner Oldham, Tammy Rogers, and so many others. How did you assemble the, the all-star cast that you assembled? It was really uh, pretty easy. Uh, you know, I, I had uh, you know, toured with a lot of these people or, or recorded with them and, uh, and knew some. Some I had never worked with. And, you know, it's just... I just started calling everybody. Brian, Brian knew some people that, that he called and uh, it was just an immediate yes from everyone and, and everyone he wanted to get involved. And, uh, and like I said, su- support the project that would uh, expand Tony's music. Did each artist choose their own song or did you choose it for them? No, most of the ones uh, I just kind of, uh, judging by the artist's personality and what I thought that they would uh, be into. I chose the song. There were a couple that, uh, that the artist chose. And um, Daryl Scott, for instance, he, he was a huge Gordon Lightfoot fan, which Tony did a lot of Gordon songs. And he really wanted to do 10 Degrees and Getting Colder. And I was totally fine with that. Uh, it, it's just everything... Uh, worked well. Um, Radney Foster, for instance, uh, I've always loved Radney's writing and, and his music, and I didn't know uh, for sure, but I just had a feeling that that Radney was a uh, a Tony Rice fan or, or was influenced by him, by him. And when he was just overjoyed that uh, that we asked because he was a huge Tony Rice fan. And uh, uh, the song that I originally chose for Radney after we recorded it, I, uh, I changed my mind. And uh, I found another song that just absolutely fit Radney perfectly and uh, was happy that we did make the change. Uh, but uh, it, it was just a smooth process from everyone. Everybody was just a delight uh, to work with. And some people on the album were performing vocals and others were just instrumental? The featured artists uh, all, um, you know, are singing, singing lead on their song. And, and then there's the other musicians that are, that are just playing uh, and some harmony singers as well. Uh, Emmy Lou Harris, uh, Kelly Johnson, uh, uh, John Cowan's uh, doing a lot of harmony as well, in addition to his featured song. So, uh, you know, we had three different fiddle players uh, Aubrey Haney, Andrea Zahn, and Tammy Rogers, uh, two different bass players, uh, John Cowan and Brian Hall. So it was uh, really a, a compact group of people that we used as musicians. Uh, Kaylin Berry played drums on everything that we had drums on. Uh, And uh, it was just, like I said, very, very easy to put this group of people together. When it, when you look at the names, it looked like it might be a, a a nightmare to get all these people together, but it was, it's just 
it was meant to be for sure. So where did you record the album? What studio? Uh, the Nut House Recording Studio in Muscle Shoals, Alabama. And when you recorded it, did, did all the musicians, did they come there? Was it any of it done live or was it, was it individually tracked uh, per artist? Most everything we did in the studio, they were a few people due to scheduling and, and where they live that uh, we did the bass tracks in Muscle Shoals and, and we sent uh, the tracks to them for them to add their vocal. Uh, like uh, Pat Simmons, he lives in Hawaii and uh, it was just not uh, going to work out for him to come to the studio. So there were a couple a couple of people that had to do that, but most of it was recorded in the studio. And so from a tribute stand, standpoint, what do you think about the album sort of captures, captures the essence of Tony Rice? Well, Tony was, uh, he didn't like boundaries either. And like, if there's any bluegrass players out there that, that don't know who Tony Rice is, it's, it's really would be bizarre. I think any bluegrass player is going to know Tony. And so we wanted to uh, do something um, that pushed, pushed his music farther. So there's many, many bluegrass players that we could have gotten to participate in this and they would have been fabulous. But the point we're trying to get across, if, if you're having Vince Gill and Radney Foster and Larry Campbell, Warren Haynes, and those type people, uh, it just turns their audience on to Tony. So we wanted this to be a project with featured artists outside the bluegrass wall. And uh, we thought that would expand farther uh, than just having bluegrass players do one. Uh, and uh, IBMA has, you know, gotten on board with this as well. And, and they totally have a a huge respect for the artists that are on this album, even though they're not bluegrass artists, but most everyone has roots in bluegrass, even if they haven't made their living in bluegrass, Vince Gill, for sure. I mean, he, I mean, he had a great uh, and has a great country career, but uh, he's a member of the Eagles now, you know, so maybe we'll have Eagles fans uh, listening to Tony Rice, which will be pretty wild because, you know, when you think about, who influenced Tony would, would be Clarence White, who was, you know, in the birds and that pre-Eagle California sound. So it's kind of like it all coming full circle again. You know what I love about the Roots world is just that there seems to be this continuum of musicians and that, that have influenced each other along the way. And you can show a real uh, connection starting way back when to present. Absolutely. It, it all is connected and one thing leads to the other. And, and it's not just about the music. You, you meet people within the music that become lifelong friends. It's just a great community. It, it just evolves and, and it's a great thing. Well, I love the album, Barry. And one thing that struck me was that I think you need to do a live show with all these people <laughs> on the stage at one time doing all this music together. I think it'd be awesome. That would be great. Yes. We, we've talked about that. And uh, if it can be scheduled, we, we're going to do it for sure. Uh, it would be, it would be great. 
Well, definitely let me know. I want to be there. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. It was such a pleasure getting to know you, Barry. And uh, uh, the album is just a, such a great album. Everyone should go out and get a copy. Learn more about Tony Rice if you don't know about his music already. He was he was an incredible musician. And, and just uh, all the different ways he influenced musicians are evident on this album. Absolutely. And, and one more point, like... Um, coming full circle point, uh, Rodney Crowell, who um, the song Rodney's doing on the album, Rodney wrote and Tony Rice recorded it, recorded it. And now Rad, uh, Rodney is doing the song he wrote in tribute to Tony. It, it was uh, a pretty cool thing in my eyes, for sure. I love it. Everything is coming full circle. Right. We wish you the best of luck with this, and we really appreciate you taking the time to talk to us about this amazing album. Thanks, Amy. Thanks for having me. We hope you enjoyed this conversation with Barry Waldrop, an acclaimed bluegrass, Americana, and jam band artist, band leader, and record producer, who's just released a new tribute album titled Barry Waldrop and Friends Celebrate Tony Rice. We can't recommend this record enough, especially for bluegrass and roots music fans. Get your copy or a copy for a friend today at barrywaldrop.com store. And remember, you can visit diddytv.com for more exclusive on-demand content and download the official free Diddy TV app from your app store today. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.